Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Welcome to this first Friday of 2020. And I decided over the last few days to put out uh, kind of another bonus end of holiday special where I will give you some insights, I hope, around the areas of uh, mindfulness meditation. And I'll get to that in a second. Over the holiday period, I've released a few episodes, a couple around books that I read in 2019, and um, hopefully they went down well. It's always nice to see folks listening to those and hopefully picking uh, one or two that they might add to their own list for the new year. But it was around the Christmas period that I read another book that for me, was very, very interesting and very practical as it dives into meditation and specifically mindfulness. So I said, why not do a small one around this? Because it's the time of year, maybe at the start of the new year, people are starting to try out new things and meditation slash mindfulness or a form of meditation as mindfulness is, is high on their list. So personally, I've been meditating with mindfulness for or practicing mindfulness for around six or seven years and have made it a consistent habit I suppose in the last four to five. I was recalling over the holidays what really was the starting point for me with this and for a while it had become something I would hear about on listening to podcasts and hear stats and facts around successful people meditating, having it a practice, 80% or something like that of people on Tim Ferriss' podcast, for example, all had a practice from way back when or currently practicing it. So I figured something was in it. And I guess personally and work life was was high stress, high pressure, and didn't feel I was fully under control around the time I got into this. thought something was needed a change and add into that the occasional hangover for me which always never uh, never worked out too good and made it worse as I'd probably be a overthinker and with um with a bit of a hangover thinking can spiral. So I started to experiment with different types of meditation, listening to different teachers the names that I come up with, a guy called Joseph Goldstein, you'll be able to check all of these out on YouTube, Sam Harris was a podcast that I got into and he mentioned Joseph Goldstein, Tim Ferriss as I said had a lot of experts on Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now, certainly one worth checking out and I've attended some classes in Cork and done stuff online and just read and really try to dive in and use apps as well of course lots of people got into meditation and mindfulness through some of the apps and I've mentioned those in the past one I think that I mentioned most is Insight Timer and I use that regularly and a guy David G was on my show last year at some point and he was somebody I would listen to on a daily basis so lots of stuff out there and but from time to time when I talk to people about mindfulness and it's really defining it is a challenge and people are saying is it just about breath or is it can it be anything and certainly it uh, is important to understand what you're doing before you kind of dive into it but it's it's all about starting as well so a guy I became very aware of Thich Nhat Hanh is his name probably not pronouncing it perfectly there but a Buddhist monk and somebody that has been 
on the planet for 93 years as of today. Lots of his content on YouTube. He, and I'm just going to read a little bit from his book, he uh, has been a poet, a scholar, human rights activist. In 1967, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King. So that's when he came to prominence, Vietnamese originally, author of many books. And over the last number of decades, he has lived in Plum Village in France, uh, where he has meditation retreats on a regular basis, never been there at some point in the future. I'd love to get there. Um, but he's a very soothing way of talking about mindfulness, how you practice it. And he's been on Oprah. So obviously he's he's uh, done well for himself from that perspective. But it's great that he's helped raise the awareness from it. And if it's a name you've never heard of, hopefully now you have and it's something you will read into and might get something from. So over Christmas, as I mentioned, I read a book that I had on my shelf for a long time. It's called The Miracle of Mindfulness, The Classic Guide to Meditation by the World's Most Revered Master, Thich Nhat Hanh. And as I was reading it, I kind of book-paged or marked a couple of sections in it that I thought, why not maybe read these out on a podcast and see if that is of value to somebody with how you could learn a bit about a practice or take an approach. And I thought I'd do that in this short bonus episode. So I'm going to read three pieces. The first one is about being present in whatever it is you do. And the example that is in the book that I'm pulling open is around washing the dishes, believe it or not. And you can be mindful when you're doing that. So again, that's trying to make you aware that it's not just about following your breath. It's about anything. So let me read this. Washing the dishes to wash the dishes. 30 years ago, when I was still a novice at Tu Hugh Pagoda, washing the dishes was hardly a pleasant task. During the season of retreat, when all the monks returned to the monastery, two novices had to do all the cooking and wash the dishes for sometimes well over 100 monks. There was no soap. We had only ashes, rice husks and coconut husks and that was all. Cleaning such a high stack of bowls was a chore, especially during the winter when the water was freezing cold. Then you had to heat up a big pot of water before you could do any scrubbing. Nowadays, one stands in the kitchen equipped with a liquid soap, special scrub pads and even running hot water, which makes it all the more agreeable. It is easier to enjoy washing the dishes now. Anyone can wash them in a hurry, then sit down and enjoy a cup of tea afterwards. I can see a machine for washing clothes, although I wash my own things out by hand, but a dishwashing machine is going just a little too far. So that's kind of maybe telling you when it was wrote. While washing the dishes, one should only be washing the dishes, which means that while washing the dishes, one should be completely aware of the fact one is washing the dishes. At first glance, that might seem a little silly, Why put so much stress on a simple thing? But that's precisely the point. The fact that I am standing there and washing these bowls is a wondrous reality. I'm being completely myself, following my breath, conscious of my presence and conscious of my thoughts and actions. There's no way I can be tossed around mindlessly like a bottle slapped here and there on the waves. So, have you ever thought about washing the dishes 
and just focusing on what you're doing, chances are you're washing the dishes thinking about that thing you did last week or the thing you're planning to do in five minutes, as Thick said, <laughs> maybe having that cup of tea. So that's an example of being mindful on your present task and what is on front of you. And believe me, it's not easy. You will go off in tangents a hundred thousand times if you were washing them for that long. But even in the five minutes you're doing it, you'll you'll be gone. It's about raising that awareness, being more present and bringing it back to the actual task at hand. And I thought that was a good example. There's other examples of eating a tangerine uh, there as well. And I've heard a good one from a guy that I didn't mention, John Kabat-Zinn, about eating a raisin and chewing that raisin for every second you're chewing it, you're aware of it. So that's the first thing I'm reading, and hopefully that gives you some insight into what mindfulness is not just about the breath, but about anything you're doing at that moment. Okay, the second piece then is about your breath, counting your breath, in fact. Another misconception or question, I guess, that comes up is when you're counting your breath, should you count it to 10 forward or backwards? Do you just follow it or is actually counting it mindfulness? There's a little passage here that talks about that. So counting your breath. Making your breath calm and even is called the method of following one's breath. If it seems hard at first, you can substitute the method of counting your breath. As you breathe in, count one in your mind, and as you breathe out, count one. Breathe in, count two, breathe out, count two. Continue through ten, then return to one again. This counting is like a string which attaches your mindfulness to your breath. This exercise is the beginning point in the process of becoming consciously conscious of your breath. Without mindfulness, however, you will quickly lose count. When the count is lost, simply return to one and keep trying until you keep the count correctly. Once you can truly focus your attention on the counts, you have reached the point at which you can begin to abandon the counting method and begin to concentrate solely on the breath itself. In those moments when you are upset or dispersed at first find and find it difficult to practice mindfulness, return to your breath. Taking hold of your breath is itself mindfulness. Your breath is the wondrous method of taking hold of your consciousness. As one religious community says in its rule, one should not lose oneself in mind dispersion or in one's surroundings. Learn to practice breathing in order to regain control of body and mind, to practice mindfulness and to develop concentration and wisdom. So there you go. Hopefully that again is interesting because if you can count your breath and do that in a conscious way up to 10 10 down, sometimes I try to 100 even, and you're able to stick with it, you are building that muscle, flexing it and strengthening it like any muscle you need to do, you need to practice and it'll get stronger. And as you get better at that, then you're at a point where you're probably able to abandon, as it says, the counting and just stick with the breath in and out. It absolutely takes time. And there is no time when I lose it after 5 to 10 or 20 a few times. And it's all about putting in the practice 
And although it sounds easy, it certainly isn't. Our minds are quite monkeyish, as you might be aware. Okay, so that's number the second passage, and I will finish up on a chapter from the book called Three Wondrous Answers. I hope I'm not breaking any infringement rights by reading these out, but anyway, it's all free publicity for the book. Okay, to end, let me retell a short story of Tolstoy's The Story of the Emperor's Three Questions. Tolstoy did not know the emperor's name. One day it occurred to a certain emperor that if he only knew the answers to three questions, he would never stray in any matter. The questions were, what is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? What is the most important thing to do at all times? The emperor issued a decree throughout his kingdom announcing that whoever could answer these questions would receive a great reward. Many who read the decree made their way to the palace at once, each person with a different answer. In reply to the first question, one person advised that the emperor make up a thorough time schedule, consecrating every hour, day, month and year for certain tasks, and then follow the schedule to the letter. Only then could he hope to do every task at the right time. Another person replied that it was impossible to plan in advance and that the emperor should put all vain amusements aside and remain attentive to everything in order to know what to do at what time. Someone else insisted by himself the emperor could never hope to have all the foresight and competence necessary to decide when to do each and every task, and what he really needed was to set up a council of the wise and then act according to their advice. Someone else said that certain matters required immediate decision and could not wait for a consultation. But if he wanted to know in advance what was going to happen, he should consult magicians and soothsayers. The responses to the second question also lacked accord. One person said that the emperor needed to place all his trust in administrators, another urged reliance on priests and monks, while others recommended physicians. Still others put their faith in warriors. The third question drew a similar variety of answers. Some said science was the most important pursuit, others insisted on religion, yet others claimed the most important thing was military skill. The emperor was not pleased with any of these answers and no reward was given. After several nights of reflection, the emperor resolved to visit a hermit who lived up the mountain and was said to be an enlightened man. The emperor wished to find the hermit to ask him the three questions. Though he knew the hermit never left the mountain and was known to receive only the poor, refusing to have anything to do with the persons of wealth or power. So the emperor disguised himself as a simple peasant and ordered his attendants to wait for him at the foot of the mountain while he climbed the slope alone to seek the hermit out. Reaching the holy man's dwelling place, the emperor found the hermit digging, a garden in front of his hut. When the hermit saw the stranger, he nodded his head in greeting and continued to dig. The labour was obviously hard on him, he was an old man, and each time he thrust the spade into the ground to turn the earth, he heaved heavily. The emperor approached him and said, I've come here to ask you for your help with three questions. When is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? And what is the most important thing to do at all times? 
The hermit listened attentively, but only patted the emperor on the shoulder and continued digging. The emperor said, you must be tired. Here, let me give you a hand. And with that, the hermit thanked him, handed him the emperor the spade, and then sat down on the ground to rest. After he had dug two rows, the emperor stopped and turned to the hermit and repeated the three questions. The hermit still did not answer, but instead stood up and pointed to the spade and said, Why don't you rest now? I can take over again. But the emperor continued to dig. One hour passed, then two. Finally, the sun began to set behind the mountains. The emperor put down the spade and said to the hermit, I came here to ask if you could answer my three questions. But if you can't give me any answer, please let me know so that I can get on my way home. The hermit lifted his head and asked the emperor, Do you hear someone running over there? The emperor turned his head. They both saw a man with a long white beard emerge from the woods. He ran wildly, pressing his hands against a bloody wound in his stomach. The man ran towards the emperor before falling unconsciously on the ground, where he lay groaning. Opening the man's clothing, the emperor and hermit saw that the man had received a deep gash. The emperor cleaned the wound thoroughly and then used his own shirt to bandage it. But the blood completely soaked it within minutes. He rinsed the shirt out and bandaged the wound a second time and continued to do so until the flow of blood had stopped. At last the wounded man regained consciousness and asked for a drink of water. The emperor ran down to the stream and brought back a jug of fresh water. Meanwhile the sun had disappeared and the ninth air had begun to turn cold. The hermit gave the emperor a hand in carrying the man into the hut where they lay him down on the hermit's bed. The man closed his eyes and lay quietly. The emperor was worn out from a long day of climbing the mountain and digging the garden. Leaning against the doorway, he fell asleep. When he rose, the sun had already risen over the mountains. For a moment, he forgot where he was and what he had come for. He looked over to the bed and saw the wounded man also looking around him in confusion. When he saw the emperor, he stared at him intently and then said in a faint whisper, Please forgive me. But what have you done that I should forgive you? The emperor asked. You do not know me, your majesty, but I know you. I was your sworn enemy and I had vowed to take vengeance on you for during the last war you killed my brother and seized my property. When I learned that you were uh, coming alone to the mountain to meet the hermit, I resolved to surprise you on your way back and kill you. But after waiting a long time, there was still no sign of you. And so I left my ambush in order to seek you out. But instead of finding you, I came across your attendants who recognized me, giving me this wound. Luckily, I escaped and ran here. If I hadn't met you, I surely would be dead by now. I had intended to kill you, but instead you saved my life. I am ashamed and grateful beyond words. If I live, I vow to be your servant for the rest of my life, and I will bid my children and grandchildren to do the same. Please grant me your forgiveness. The emperor was overjoyed to see that he was so easily reconciled with a former enemy. He not only forgave the man, but promised to return all the man's properties and to send his own physician and servants to wait on the man until he was completely healed. After ordering his attendants to take the man home, the emperor returned to see the hermit. 
Before returning to the palace, the emperor wanted to repeat his three questions one last time. He found the hermit sowing seeds in the earth they had dug the day before. The hermit stood up and looked at the emperor. But your questions have already been answered. How's that? The emperor asked, puzzled. Yesterday, if you had not taken pity on my age and given me a hand with digging these beds, you would have been attacked by that man on your way home. Then you would have deeply regretted not staying with me. Therefore, the most important time was the time you were digging in the beds. The most important person was myself, and the most important pursuit was to help me. Later, when the wounded man ran up here, the most important time was the time you spent dressing his wounds. For if you had not cared for him, he would have died, and you would have lost the chance to be reconciled with him. Likewise, he was the most important person, and the most important pursuit was taking care of his wound. Remember that there is only one important time, and that is now. The present moment is the only time over which we have dominion. The most important person is always the person you were with, who is right before you. For who knows if you will have future dealings with any other person. The most important pursuit is making the person standing at your side happy. For that alone is the pursuit of life. So Tolstoy's story is a story out of scripture. It doesn't fall short of any sacred text. We talk about the social service, service to the people, service to humanity, service for others who are far away, helping to bring peace to the world. But we often forget that it's the very people around us that we must live with first of all. If you cannot serve your wife or husband or child or parent, how are you going to serve society? If you cannot make your own child happy, how do you expect to be able to make anyone else happy? If all our friends in the peace movement or of service communities of any kind do not love and help one another, whom can we love and help? Are we working for other humans or are we just working for the name of an organization? The last piece is called service. The service of peace, the service of any person in need, the word service is so immense. Let's first return to a more modest scale. Our families, our classmates, our friends, our own community, we must live for them. For if we cannot live for them, whom else do we think we are living for? Tolstoy is a saint, what we Buddhists would call a bodhisattva. But was the emperor himself able to see the meaning and direction of life? How can we live in the present moment, live right now with the people around us, helping to lessen their suffering and making their lives happier. How? The answer is this. We need to practice mindfulness. The principle that Tolstoy gives away appears easy. But if we want to put into practice, we must use the methods of mindfulness in order to seek and find the way. He goes to say, I've written these pages for our friends to use. There are many people who have written about these things without having lived them. But I've only written down those things which I've lived and experienced myself. I hope you and your friends will find these things at least a little helpful along the path of our seeking, the path of our return. And that's Tick's last words before the last few chapters of the book are practical examples of mindfulness. So there you go. Hopefully that 
was of interest. Uh, I haven't probably read as long of a little chapter or a story like that before, and hopefully it came across okay and you got the, the message from Tolstoy's story about the emperor. Okay, next week I will be back with a normal 1% Better podcast with an interview. I have a few in the can already, one with a grandmaster, chess grandmaster, another with a podcast producer that's been creating podcasts before they were a thing, and another with a marketing, chief marketing officer, which we'll touch on. They'll be the next few weeks, and others in the recording uh, queue. And yeah, looking forward to it. So finally, just one funny piece of information. I just have a a daily email from some chart aggregator and it showed that we were number one, 1% better was number one in Zimbabwe in the last few days, which is very funny, but cool at the same time. I would imagine it might have been only one or two people living there that, that checked it out, but that's okay. We'll take it. Top of the charts is always good when we're not actually paying that person to uh, promote the show. And that's great. But seriously, anytime we're in the charts high up, it means that other folks could potentially see the show, click in, what's this about? Oh, that might be an episode I'd like to hear. And that's where the ball starts rolling and they get into the back catalogue and all of that good stuff. So that's great. All I can say is one action that I would like you to take If you enjoyed this episode about mindfulness or any of the episodes, all I'm requesting, maybe two things. One is to, if you see it on social media, give it a retweet, a post, a like, comments, all of that is great. It helps me expand the reach, the ripple effect, and get other people listening and on board. And the others are around subscribing to the show on whatever podcast app. So it does be in those charts and people can hear it be it in Zimbabwe, Angola, Australia, or wherever, Ireland, Cork, Dublin, it's all good. The book I've read from is called The Miracle of Mindfulness, Tish Nathan. I will put it onto the book page on the website. There'll be a link there. It's under the more drop-down section books. Uh, I get nothing from selling this on. It's going to be through Amazon. I picked it up in Vibes and Scribes in Cork, which is a brilliant shop, secondhand. A nice little book, probably 120 pages or something. And I hope you are inspired to read it or at least check out more stuff from Tich Nhat Hanh online. And if you do and you're building a practice, I'd love to hear from you. And I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm not a meditation expert. Uh, I don't have any formal qualification, but I do uh, have life experience from it now. And it has helped massively. So there you go. Thanks for listening chat again soon and have a great day weekend and happy new year once again good luck